When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you staring blankly at each other? I've just heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we can survive and not starve to death. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. However, Jacob didn't send Joseph's brother Benjamin along with his brothers because he thought something bad might happen to him. Israel's sons came to buy grain with others who also came since the famine had spread to the land of Canaan. As for Joseph, he was the land's governor, and he was the one selling grain to all the land's people. When Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him, their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he acted like he didn't know them. He spoke to them with a harsh tone and said, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. There's been a subtle literary theme running under the surface of the story of Joseph, and it comes to full fruition here in these few verses from chapter 42. I, I would argue, though, because we usually read the Bible in piecemeal fashion, a chapter here, a chapter there, maybe even a verse here or a verse there, or come on, who are we kidding? Uh, a meme here or a meme there or something that your grandmother shares here and something that your dad shares there. I don't know. But we, but we see very uh, small increments of the Bible from time to time. And because of that level of exposure, we tend to miss the big payoff in this story. This has been chapters in the making for the author of the, the Joseph story. Now, I do assume that you caught the end of this theme in the few verses that we read a few moments ago. Uh, perhaps it stuck out to you as we were reading the text, as you were hearing the text. It's the theme of recognition, right? Joseph, the punk 17-year-old kid, the dream master, as it says earlier in the story. Now, the dream master who was clothed in an ornamented coat or a long-sleeved coat or a coat that goes down to his ankles or a coat that in its only other mention in the Old Testament is worn by virgin princesses. It's a coat that whatever it may have looked like, it represents Joseph's father's love for him over and above that of his brothers and thus the coat, and more fundamentally what it represents, it became an impetus, not the only one, but an impetus for his brother's hatred of him, his brother's bitterness, his brother's resentment. It became an impetus for his brothers to get rid of their brother, Joseph, to throw him in a cistern, uh, a pit, and then sell him into Egyptian slavery. It became an impetus for them to kill him, which no doubt is exactly what they thought would happen to him in Egypt. However, through a painful process lasting 15 years or so, a, a process that included accusations of sexual misconduct and eventual imprisonment, uh, it's a process that culminates in Joseph's advancement in the Egyptian empire and also his forgetting what has happened to him. 
and his forgetting uh, about those who have inflicted this pain upon him. Namely, Joseph forgets his family, the brothers who tried to kill him, the, the brothers that he loved, and the father who was left to know nothing different than his favored son now dead. Joseph had moved on. His brothers, we can assume, had moved on too. His father absolutely has not. There's chapters and chapters of his, of his grief, and this is something that lasted for years over the course of his life. But he at least seemed to accept the fate of his son, probably. There's a couple of hints in the story that would lead us to, to push back against that. But now... Due to their need for food because of a famine that Joseph had predicted, Joseph's brothers travel to Egypt and unexpectedly reappear in his life. But only Joseph recognizes them in the story. On a literary level, the author has skillfully woven this tapestry of recognition together from the very beginning of the story. Let me let me bring some of these uh, things together for you. Recall, prior to selling Joseph into Egyptian slavery, his brothers had taken his coat, remember, his ornamented coat, his long-sleeved coat, or his ankle-length coat, or his coat that in its only other mention in the Old Testament was worn by virgin princesses. They take it and they rip it and they dip it in ram's blood and then they send it home to their father saying, Do you recognize this? From this early story of Joseph's life, the theme of recognition, it begins. In the next chapter in Genesis 38, we we read this really odd story of Judah, Joseph's brother. And for many years, commentators were convinced that this story was an intrusion on the larger story of Joseph because it seemed to have nothing whatsoever to do with Joseph. It maybe is just inserted here to to kill some time uh, in in Joseph's story. It, it, It was unclear, and most commentators say this doesn't belong here. This is a story where Judah abandons his daughter-in-law, Tamar, for fear that his third son, his youngest son, would die if he tried to have sex with her. It sounds crazy, but Judah's firstborn son, Ur, was married to Tamar, and he died. We learn that he died as readers because he sinned against the Lord, but Judah, uh, Judah didn't know that. Uh, According to custom, the firstborn's brother, Onan, was supposed to impregnate his brother's widow so any children resulting from this union could receive the dead brother's inheritance. Did you follow that? This practice, it's known as leveret marriage, it was meant to protect widows like Tamar, who without any children would be left with no inheritance, no, no land, and thus no real protections. So the brotherly duty was to provide offspring that would inherit the other, uh, now deceased brother's, lot within the family. But Onan didn't want to share his inheritance with his dead brother's kids, so it says that he spilled his seed on the ground. And for this, God killed him too. 
admittedly, there's a lot of divine violence going on here, but I just want to hurry past that because that's not the point of this talk. We can circle back to that if you'd like. Call me, we'll do virtual coffee. So Judah sees his first two sons dead, and the only common link is they're ostensibly having had sex with Tamar, who is alive and well. So Judah thinks, well, I don't want my last living son to try this. Maybe he's going to die too. So in an unprecedented move, a heartless move, Judah sends his daughter-in-law Tamar back home in shame. As the story unfolds, Tamar learns that Judah, her father-in-law, is going to a sheep shearing festival after his own wife had died. Now, sheep shearing festivals, as you well know, uh, they they were they were a good time. Maybe roughly equivalent to spring break at Cancun for college students. Uh, lots of drinks are flowing. Lots of ladies are flowing. Lots of events are happening. So Tamar dresses up like a cult prostitute as you do to try and lure her father-in-law into a sexual escapade. As um. No, that that one doesn't really work there, but this is her plan, and it works. Judah unknowingly propositions Tamar, who says, yeah, sure, I'll sleep with you, but only if you give me your seal and your staff, which is a big ask. This is like forms of identification for Judah, and he's handing these things over to Tamar. Tamar, side note, she's veiled, so Judah doesn't know that it's her. But even with this big ask, Judah complies and he sleeps with Tamar and she gets pregnant and Judah doesn't get his seal or his staff back. There's more to that story. You can go back and listen to the sermon uh, that I did on that a few weeks ago. But later on, Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant and not knowing that the baby is actually his, he rushes to get rid of the problem that is Tamar. He rushes to kill her. Actually, he wants to burn her for her improprieties, for playing the role of the harlot. But Tamar says, okay, the father of this child is the one who owns these, and then shows him the seal and the staff. Sorry, I, I'm not sure if you were expecting that level of excitement from me, but there it was nonetheless. And she says this, which kind of brings this whole story to its conclusion. The father whose children or child this will be, she actually has twins, but they don't know that yet, is the one who owns these. Do you recognize them. It's the same verb in both passages. Dad, do you recognize this bloodied, shredded coat? And Judah, do you recognize the seal and the staff? You see, there's this theme of recognition that's been working under the surface the entire time. And now when Joseph's brothers show up in Egypt, it says that Joseph sees them and he recognizes them. It's the same verb. Joseph played the stranger to them. He doesn't let them know who he is, which is another um, beautiful point of literary artistry by the author because the verb here for playing the stranger, it actually comes from the same root as the verb meaning to recognize. Joseph doesn't let them know who he is and he speaks harshly to them and he says to them, where have you come from? And, And you can also just imagine that his edge here is probably not feigned, right? There's a lot of background between these people. 
And they say, we've come from the land of Canaan and we've come to buy food. And Joseph, the author notes again, recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. This story is is so rich and it's so skillfully told. I I want you to know about this literary theme that's been sort of under the surface. I, I want you to see the big payoff of that theme of recognition here in this story. I, I want you to know the intentionality and the literary artistry and the beauty and just the skill that the author is bringing to this task of telling the story. It's it's absolutely breathtaking. Joseph as we probably know, he, he plays on this lack of recognition to trick his brothers, setting them up for uh, punishment in their mind, making them fear retribution from the number two man in the Egyptian empire when he uh, puts the money back into their pouches and sends them home. Like He, he kind of plays these mind games on, on his brothers, and he's playing uh, with this idea that he knows them, but they don't know him. Now, in fact, the brothers begin to wonder, like, is this payback for us killing Joseph, who they don't realize is actually standing right in front of them? For our purposes now, I, I just I want you to indulge me for a moment. We'll pick up a lot of the, the loose ends of the story here in the next week or so. But I'd, I'd like to use this moment in the Joseph narrative and more specifically, Joseph's recognition of his brothers, just to make a larger point. Joseph, remember, he, he's moved on. He had forgotten, as much as he was able to do so, his afflictions and also the people who uh, were responsible for his afflictions, namely his family. And now Joseph finds himself face to face with his flesh and blood, with his brothers, the same ones who wished him dead. 15 or so years prior, and these people that have completely derailed his life, they don't recognize him. Talk about trauma. Talk about years and years of therapy just going out the window in a matter of moments, in a flash. Talk about confronting your demons. I'm not sure which is worse, for Joseph to recognize his attempted murderers, more or less, after moving on, or for Joseph to recognize his attempted murderers after moving on, and for him to realize that they don't even know who he is, for them not to recognize him. Now, this story in in Genesis, it's a bit crazy. Uh, It's At the very least, it's difficult for us to imagine and for us to place ourselves in uh, in the role of Joseph in this story, as if we've had 10 of our brothers plotting to murder us and then sell us into Egyptian slavery. It's difficult for us to get maybe to that level of betrayal, but trauma isn't difficult for us to understand. Betrayal isn't difficult for us to understand. People looking you right in the face and not recognizing or not acknowledging what they've done to hurt you, that's that's not hard for us to imagine. The metaphorical murdering of innocence is not hard to imagine. 
For too many people, crimes of sexual abuse and crimes that have, have robbed so many of so much, they aren't difficult to imagine. For some others, perhaps it's, it's church trauma. Maybe it's leaders who have let you down, leaders who have manipulated you, leaders who have uh, for years made you feel guilt and shame, leaders who have reduced you and your worth to your sexual orientation or your gender or your ethnicity or your theology. I was talking to a friend just the other day and she mentioned that there's this immense difficulty that a lot of people in her community feel just from walking over the threshold of a physical church building because of the weight that they carry with them. There's this immense pressure and uh, anxiety that comes along with returning to the institutional church just because it's the site of hurt and pain. We may not know about our brothers selling us into slavery and being okay with our eventual death, but maybe there have been moments when you have had to look into the eyes of someone who has violated you, who has wronged you, who has hurt you, who has caused trauma for you. Maybe you can understand what Joseph feels here, that mix of fear and rage and shame and confusion. Sadly, the story, it, it makes no mention of Joseph's internal reactions. And perhaps for that reason, I might be reading in a bit too much here. In fact, the story, it depicts Joseph as snapping into action pretty quickly, uh, accusing his brothers of being spies. This starts this whole uh, mind game that Joseph plays with them here, and it, it seems to happen pretty, pretty quickly. It, it can feel like uh, when you're reading it this way and him moving from the recognition to this plan A that he's had, it can feel like he's thought about this moment before, like just laying in bed thinking, if I ever see those guys again, uh, this, this is what I'm going to do to them. I'm going to plot in this way and do this sort of thing. And as a result, sometimes when we read the story, we read right past those initial seconds of Joseph having to process what is happening right in front of him. And honestly, I think those moments might be the most relatable part of this story. It's seeing the person who has caused you pain in a coffee shop. You remember coffee shops? And they were good. It's seeing a person walk through the door of the establishment that you're in and having to face all of those feelings that are being stirred up. Maybe it's not a coffee shop, maybe it's a grocery store, maybe it's on a Facebook comment thread and you're not expecting to see this person because you've unfollowed or you, uh, you've unfriended but somehow you still share mutual contacts and then you see them pop up and that thing that just messes around in your, in your stomach, that is the moment that you have to come to terms with what has happened. Maybe it's on your Instagram feed, same sort of thing, a like here, a comment there. It, it, it makes us confront this recognition. And, and what do you do with, with that? 
this might be a little controversial. I, I'm not sure, but I want to free you of expectations here. If you happen to be one of those people, say, that feels the weight uh, walking over the threshold of an institutional brick-and-mortar church because of what has happened to you, or you're still carrying a lot of baggage from from these experiences and moments in your life, I want to free you of expectations as I ask the big question, what do you do with this recognition? Because I'm not really sure that there's a right answer here. Rage, anger, hurt, pain, fear, also forgiveness, release. These are all acceptable and very normal human emotions. I'd love to say that like Joseph, we are all able to move beyond what has happened to us, which he seems to do in the next couple of chapters, forgiving his brothers, weeping with them, including them, um, reuniting with them, reconciling with them. I'd love to say that we all get there, but honestly, I'm not too confident that's the case. It can be. I don't want to deny that. I don't want to take away from that. I don't want to, uh, you know, strip people of what Jesus can do in our lives, what the Spirit can bring about, the levels of reconciliation and forgiveness and letting go and moving on. I don't want to say that we will always be uh, traumatized by these things that we have faced, but I'm also not sure that it has to be there. It has to get there. I'm not so sure that it has to conclude with all of the feelings of moving on and letting go. Here's what I would say to those who have baggage that up to this point in your life, it's been impossible for you to let go of. This is what I would say. It's okay. On Sunday, as we talked about some of these themes, uh, we we bookended the, the sermon with a song called He Has Time by a group Uh, called Common Hymnal. And in this song, it claims, Jesus runs after the broken ones, weeping with those who weep, crowns them with purity, and years of shame they shatter in Jesus' name. I believe that. And with everything I have, I, I believe that that is possible. Those, those lines, most notably, that Jesus weeps with those who weep. Sometimes we put Jesus at the end goal, sort of saying, I'll be okay with you once you get to this place in your life. And instead of seeing Jesus as identifying with us in our pain, we kind of turn Jesus into this... Uh, tormentor almost, who puts things in our lives, these terrible moments of tragedy to teach us something or to help us uh, figure out that we really do believe or whatever nonsense you've heard from a pulpit. And what we miss sometimes is, is is a God who weeps with those who weep, a God who enters into the trauma with us. In the song, it claims that years of shame shatters in, in Jesus' name. I, I do believe that that is possible. With everything that I have, I've, I've seen it. I, I've, um, I've recognized this going on in, in the lives of people around me. But I, I can't tell you when 
that shattering happens, or if that shattering happens here in this life. The next line of the song, it says, you can't shake the feeling. He's not in a rush. He has time for your healing. And I wonder if within the church, we rush that. I wonder if sometimes we make people get to the moment of forgiveness and release. And we can hope for that, absolutely, because it probably would lead one to live a more freeing life. But I think sometimes we might rush that and we might put Jesus on the clock. He has time for your healing, but you know, not, not a whole lot. So you need to figure this out. You need to get over this. You need, to, you need to forgive and you need to move on and you need to do whatever, whatever, because that's really what a Christian would do, right? A Christian would, would, would get to the end of this trauma. They would get to the end of this trial. They would get to the end of this, this suffering. And, and you know, you, you should really do that. If, if you claim to follow Jesus, you should fix all this, right? And I think when we do that, we miss uh, some of the, the beauty of what it means to trust Jesus. What it means to allow a, a process to work itself out. What it means to recognize that, that he has time, that we're not on the clock, that our feelings and our emotions, that, that they're real and sometimes they can't be rushed. Which is why I can, I can come back and say, whatever you feel, over these really legitimate uh, experiences that, that you've had, it, it's okay. I don't think Jesus is 50 yards ahead of you saying, all right, when you get over here, then. I think Jesus weeps with those who weep. I think Jesus stands in solidarity with those who have experienced trauma. I think Jesus has time for your healing. And I wonder what it would look like for the church community as a whole to recognize that there's these moments when people are looking into the faces of those who have hurt them and they don't know how to handle all of the, the emotions that they have on the inside. And I wonder what it would look like for the church community to rally around them and say, it's okay. We stand with you. We're present with you. We'll be whatever it is that you need us to be. We'll encourage you that Jesus has all the time in the world, that his love for you is not diminished, that this is not the grand plan for your life and that this is just something that you have to overcome, that your story's not over. I think in this moment in the, the narrative of Joseph, what we see is something that is relatable and something that if we could just pause and allow some of those uh, internalized feelings to, um, to be recognized that we might find ourselves in this story. And as a minister, I just, I'm hopeful that we will present a God who weeps with those who weep, a God who is not here to rush us a God who stands in solidarity with us. A God who loves us desperately and powerfully. And when we are ready and able, can lead us, perhaps, to forgiveness 
and restoration. <laughs>